we came up on a roadblock where there was just bamboo and rocks on the road. And there was locals wearing bandanas, holding machetes, holding cell phones, smashing bottles on the road, and then they're putting barbed wire across the road. Both of us were like, okay, this is, this is serious. One of those situations. Once we got into the middle of it, um, the, the locals, like the guys actually creating the blockade, they were upset because they wanted to block the road. They, they didn't want anybody through. So we ended up getting on the throttle and, you know, just trying to race by. Kevin Chow spent 12 years saving for his ultimate motorcycle trip. He made a detailed trip plan and hit the road, but after only two months, he discovered his plans required some flexibility. My name's Jim Martin. This is Adventure Rider Radio. Stay with us. We get a good one for you. This episode is brought to you in part by Max BMW Motorcycles that's been outfitting adventure riders since 2002. They've got 45,000 parts and accessories available online and ready to ship to your door at maxbmw.com. And you can also sign up for their e-rider newsletter. It's free and I highly recommend it. That's www.maxbmw.com. The MotoBreeze chain oiler is powered by wind pressure that automatically adjusts for speed. No electrical or vacuum connections. It delivers oil to your chain with a felt pad that's mounted on your swing arm, which eliminates the problems of exposed nozzles near your sprockets. Get more miles from your chain and sprockets and forget about the messy spray oil. www.motobreeze.com. That's two eyes in there. www.motobreeze.com. Hi, I'm Sam Manicum. Nick Sanders. Terry Borden. Sandy Borden. Jack Borden. Graham Field. Austin Vince. Jason Spafford. Lisa Murray. David Peterson. Rachel. Ed March. Glenn Hitstead. Dr. Greg W. Fraser. Dave Barr. Michelle Lampier. Tiffany Coates. Herbert Schmack. Zoe Cano. Nathan Millward. Graham Hoskins. Joe Russ. Jeremy Craker. Simon Thomas. Lisa Thomas. Simon Pavey. Grant Johnson. Robert Wick. Seth Simon. Elizabeth Martin. Carol DeBell. And you're listening to Adventure Rider Radio. Best Rest Products is home of the Cycle Pump Tire Inflator, Tire and Bead Breaker, Easy Air Tire Gauge, and other adventure motorcycle gear. The Cycle Pump runs right off your bike's electrical system. It'll inflate your flat tire in less than three minutes. It's made in the USA, and it comes with a lifetime warranty. And Motorcycle Consumer News Magazine just chose the Cycle Pump as their top pick in a compressor shakedown. Also, Best Rest is a North American distributor for Google Tech filters, the filters that should be on your bike. Visit them at www.cyclepump.com. That's www.cyclepump.com. Green Chili Adventure Gear offers American-made, heavy-duty, innovative luggage systems for all types of motorcycles. Turn any bag into motorcycle luggage with this unique strapping system that's easy to use and switch from one bike to another. And of course, Green Chili Adventure Gear is all tested in extreme weather and terrain to withstand the abuse of adventure riding, which has gained them a top reputation for tough, reliable gear. www.greenchiliadv.com That's www.greenchiliadv.com All right. 
Uh, my name is Kevin Chow. I'm from Quinnell, British Columbia, Canada, and uh, I guess I'm a long-distance motorcyclist. doubt that Kevin Chow is a planner. He spent 12 years saving for the motorcycle trip of a lifetime. And as we said in the intro, just two months in, he found that he needed a lot more flexibility than what he ever imagined. Here's Kevin Chow from where he is now, at least for the time being, in Australia. Kevin, welcome to Adventure Rider Radio. Yeah, thank you. Well, what did you do before you became a long-distance motorcycle rider or motorcycle traveler? Well, professional-wise, I'm a marketer. So I worked in the uh, Harley-Davidson industry for eight and a half years. So what do you do as uh, for marketing, though, for Harley-Davidson? So run the websites, put inventory online, um, do events, run campaigns, processes. There's a lot of behind-the-scenes programs inside of dealerships, so like rewards programs and, and anything like that. So the, the marketing manager would run that stuff. So that's at a dealer level? Correct. Well, what got into you to make you want to travel? Oof, I got the bug when I was just a little kid. My parents are uh, big travelers. We used to go to Hood River, Oregon every summer living in the motorhome or the camper or camper van or whatever we had. Um, so just meeting people throughout the summer from when I was seven to when I was 18, um, you, you get, you just get the bug. But was it a bug for seeing different places or meeting the different people? Uh, I would say when we went to Hood River, you know, coming from Cornell, which is a small Canadian country town, and then going down to Oregon, which is still a pretty small place, you get to kind of broaden your horizons as far as who you meet and Hood River attracts a lot of people from all over the world so you get to know people and then you know you kind of get the bug and you're like oh, I want to go there I want to go there so that was uh, probably the start of it as a child um, and luckily we always had motorcycles so growing up I got my first dirt bike when I was eight I got an XR80 so just kind of connected the two throughout the years so you ended up at one point, um, you're, you're working, you've got your career, and you sold everything and took off I on did. your ad- adventure. Why do that? Why sell everything and take off on an adventure? I really wanted to simplify things. Um, that, was, that was really it. I had a house, and uh, it just made sense to me to sell the house versus rent it. And uh, from doing that, I actually bought a, a shipping container, a 20-foot shipping container, and got it dropped off in Quinnell at my parents' house and put most of my stuff in there, my tools, my gear, everything that wasn't coming on the trip with me. It just was simple. Like I could just basically walk away from Canada and have the road and my motorcycle in front of me. So what was the plan? I had a pretty good plan when I left. Um, I really wanted to do Alaska down to Argentina. Um, the whole way. 
and then fly me and a bike from Buenos Aires over to Cape Town and then work my way up the east side of Africa into Europe and then ride from Europe to Japan. So like the big ride, I think that's pretty much on everybody's bucket list. Um, and I've done the Americas and now I'm in Australia. So, you know, when you get moving, the people you meet kind of dictates where you end up deciding to go. And you, you kind of learn that as you go. You took an R1200 GS. It's kind of odd for somebody who spent a lot of time working for Harley Davidson. Why not a Harley? Um, I've always flip-flopped back and forth between the small single-cylinder bikes to the big bikes. Like, I think I've had 16 or 17 motorcycles now. And uh, Ooh, the wow. only reason, yeah, the only reason I left with a 1200 is because I did Vancouver up to Chicken, Alaska and back down on another leg. So that was just on a, a vacation time from work. So I had the bike built. And when I decided to leave, the bike was already there. It had the guards, it had the luggage, it had everything. So it was just easy for me to just throw my gear on it and go. So it wasn't necessarily the right bike, but it was the bike that I took. What do you mean it wasn't the right bike? It, they're heavy. <laughs> 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 oh, that's that's a heavy bike. Mm-hmm. Um, like I have 80,000 K on that bike now. And for most of the stretch, it was the right motorcycle. But for a lot of it, it was just like I would have preferred having the 250 again. So, you know, when you're in the saddle every day, the the bike kind of dictates the roads and the trails that you take. If you want to take technical stuff or you got a lot of energy that day, the 1200 GS is just a monster. So, but in Argentina and Alaska, that's I wouldn't have wanted it at a 250. The 1200 was perfect. So it's just that conversation. You know? For the open spaces. Exactly. Exactly. Mm-hmm. You have a plan. It's funny because I noticed the way you described your plan, you had a good plan at the start, I think is what you said. Does that mean <laughs> your plan has changed? Let me, let me, let me ask something else. Are, are you a real planner person? Have you always been, and, and I'm coming from marketing, I wouldn't be surprised if you said yes, but are you that type of person that likes to plan things to the, to the nth degree? Real detail? Uh, yeah. <laughs> I'd like to say I'm not a planner, but, uh, I definitely like to know what to expect and I like to be prepared for things. Um, so yeah, I, <laughs> I definitely am. And I did have a nice route planned out. I had the, the money in the bank. I had the time, you know, I've put everything in storage. So I have as much time as I needed. Um, and then, you know, things change and your energy level changes. And, you know, sometimes the, the trip doesn't need to be two years. Maybe it can be 10 years. It can be 15 years. So I met a lot of people on my travels that were just rushing past things. And, you know, I was just kind of scratching my head going, do I need to do this? I'm only going to do this once. So maybe I should just make this as long as I possibly can. Because you started out with a two-year plan? Yeah, yeah. And now it's extended to what? Indefinite. Maybe my lifestyle and, you know, it, it, if it takes me eight years to get around the planet, then it takes me eight years to get around the planet. Well, what changed for you? Like, I mean, you you obviously left for with this plan of the two years. How far into the trip? How long did it take for you to all of a sudden say, you know, I'm in love with this? Um, in I guess I could go back to 2004 is when I originally started a bank account for this trip. So this has always been a motivator and a cash saving vehicle mentally for me for 12, 13 years. Um, so it's always been something there. 
And I've always wanted it just to be on the motorcycle and exploring and seeing things and, you know, kind of calling my own shots and having the freedom. So originally it was like, okay, I got money for two years. I can pay for all of this. I can have a good time. But two years goes pretty quick. I'm over a year and a half into it now, and it feels like I've just kind of touched the surface. So if it takes longer, that's fine, you know. When you left your home, you, did you leave in February? I did February 6th, and well, it was snowing. I, I, don't, I was going to say, I don't understand where you can go. I mean, it's, it's Canada. <laughs> uh, yeah. you know, maybe a Vancouver Island, but I mean, it's Canada. Where are you going to go in February? Yeah, it, uh, it just kind of worked out because I wanted to spend that Christmas in Quinnell with my family because normally I'm spending Christmas wherever I'm working. Um, so I quit my job beginning of December, put everything into storage. February rolled around and it's like, okay, let's go. It's time to go. And is there snow on the roads when you pull away? There was, yeah. On that week, it dumped in Vancouver. I was staying with some friends in North Vancouver and I was actually trapped there for five days uh, with the snowstorm. And, uh, obviously the beginning of the trip, I was like really anxious, like I want to get to Mexico. But looking back now, it's like, that's part of it. Five days is nothing. <laughs> you mean nothing to hang around somewhere. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes. <laughs> so you're heading South at that point. Correct. And what was it like? I mean, I imagine the States, it was something you expected. Well, I did it quick. I just went down the coast because I've done that trip numerous times uh, in vans and other motorcycles. I actually just cycled Vancouver to San Francisco about four months previous. So we got intimate with that route because we were on bicycles. So on this particular leg on the motorcycle, it was just to get to Mexico. And then mentally, me being in Bajas, everything was kind of starting. That's where the trip sort of really started as far as you were concerned. Yeah, yeah. It always kind of starts in Mexico. What was Mexico like? Uh, It was nice. It was warm. There was no rain. (laughs) I could actually crawl into the tent and be comfortable. Which is bizarre for a Canadian in that time of year. (laughs) For those who don't know. (laughs) Yeah, it was great. (laughs) Where did you run into, I don't want to say trouble, where did you run into difficulty traveling as you were heading down? Um, I think the first kind of difficult situation would have been ox truck in southern Mexico. Um, it, it probably took me two hours to get through a, uh, a roadblock that was maybe two kilometers long. Um, and I didn't really know what I was riding into as I just started riding through this small mountain town. And uh, um, there was cars parked along the side of the road. And it was a paved road. And there was big boulders stacked in the middle of the road. So I knew that there was a roadblock, but I didn't know if it was for political reasons or if there was something unsafe coming up or what it was. So I parked the bike and walked ahead to talk to some locals. And they're like, you know, I don't speak Spanish, especially two months into the trip. My Spanish was horrible. So I'm just kind of, you know, reading people's body language to see if this was safe or it wasn't. Um, so I'm walking ahead. Okay, it's good. So I walk back to the bike. You rode ahead, you know, half a kilometer and then park the bike and walk down further. And what happened was, is, uh, the locals had semi trucks and trailers parked diagonally across this section of this mountain road where you couldn't get around. It was quite steep on both sides. Um, 
and they've blocked the road. Like people on either sides, taxis, trucks, they, they just weren't getting across. And uh, they didn't even want the locals walking back and forth. So I pulled up Google Maps on the phone and was looking around uh, a detour. And it was probably going to take me a day and a half to, to detour to get into Palenque, which was the town that I was headed for. And uh, um, just basically talking to the locals and seeing if it was okay if I passed, because, you know, I have nothing to do with the politics in that area. I'm just a foreigner, right? Um, so ended up pulling the panniers off the bike to squeeze by the trucks to get, you know, around the, the cliff and kind of move through the uh, the blockade. And um, I made it. It just took a lot of time and people weren't really happy with me, but it was it was okay. It wasn't hostile. So they're standing there blocking the road and, and you're taking your luggage off and working the bike around. Is, is anyone helping you at that point? Uh, no, people were kind of baffled as to what I was doing. Some people were a little bit upset and some people were just kind of laughing and talking amongst themselves because, you know, it's a small town. If there's a blockade, it's definitely something's happening in the town. So everybody was kind of out watching. Um, but yeah, that was probably the first thing. And that was probably two months into my trip. And, uh, you know, looking back now, um, I probably shouldn't have done it just for respect reasons, but everybody was okay with it. But that's normal in Latin America. when you read through that, the Latinos love to block the roads, you know, for political reasons, sometimes it's just for something minor and sometimes it's really, really big. So that one happened to be a taxi strike. I found out, you know, three days later that the, the taxis were unhappy with what something was happening with the government. So. Really, it was just a taxi strike, which isn't that big of a deal, you know, in the big picture. The roadblock you mentioned, you said there was rocks on the road and, and semi-tractors blocking it. Did they do mm-hmm. anything else? Um, no, no. It was the, the main roadblock in the center was semi-trucks parked diagonally. So obviously trucks couldn't get by, but people could barely walk by. So a fully loaded GS with panniers, I couldn't get by. That's why I had to pull the panniers off. Mm. And they're not they're not breaking glass and doing those sorts of things. No, I hit that situation in Colombia, glass oh. and barbed wire. <laughs> oh, nice. So, so that's your first roadblock. What's going through your mind though as you're going around there? Because I'm trying to get the feel of what it was like for you at the time. Are you just thinking, oh yeah, I'm good and I'm going to make it through no problem, or are you sort of on edge? Oh, I was <laughs> completely on edge. Yeah, stressing because I was by myself and my Spanish sucks. So, you know, if, if somebody wanted to be hostile, it's basically all I can do is smile and just try and act funny and goofy, you know, like play stupid. Um, so it's basically at that point, I was just reading people's body language and I didn't want to burn the gas in the day and a half to do a huge detour. So, it was, you know, I'll, I'll take the risk if people are smiling and OK with things. If, you know, people are hostile looking and covering their faces, then it was a different situation. So. You know, in, in hindsight, it was good training for me for getting into Columbia because Columbia was a different story with the roadblocks. Um, but, I mean, this is kind of part of the travels, too, when you're by yourself on a motorcycle. What were your border crossings like? Uh, that's the, the OCD in me. The, the border crossings were actually okay. I always went early. Um, I always had my paperwork ready. And I was always mentally prepared to be at a border for four to five hours if necessary. So you hear stories on the road of people trying to get across the border, you know, at four or five p.m. in the afternoon. 
and it just doesn't work. And then they're stuck at the border in the dark and then they're riding in the dark. So, you know, my, my border crossings were actually really good. So you, do you run into more roadblocks? Uh, I did. Um, there was quite a few and some of them were just minor where you could just bolt around on the bike and not stop and talk to people. And some of them, um, like the one just north of Cali in Columbia, I was riding uh, with a fellow named Steve from from Santa Cruz. So he had a KLR. So there was a small section for about a week and a half that we were riding together. And um, we came up on a roadblock where there was just bamboo and rocks on the road. And, uh, um, you know, in Colombia, sometimes they'll throw rocks on the road or bamboo just to show hazards, just so you know that there's something coming up. So both of us expected that there was just hazards on the road and uh, um, went up a little bit further and there was cars parked along the side of the road and then got up to the front and there was locals wearing bandanas, holding machetes, holding cell phones, smashing bottles on the road and then we, we ended up getting right to the front when they were creating the barricade. So they were putting barbed wire across the road. And both of us were like, okay, this is, this is serious. And this is one of those situations where if we had to take a detour, it's probably going to be two days to get around it. So um, we pulled over and shut the bikes off and talked about, okay, how, what are we going to do? Because even when I was in Colombia, my Spanish wasn't great. But Steve... His uh, his parents are Argentinian, so his Spanish is really good. So he decided to ride up to the front and talk to the locals like, hey, can we get by? You know, we're foreigners. It's surprising what you can get a, a, <laughs> get away with when you're like, hey, I'm a foreigner. Let, let me just get by. But uh, the guys with the bandanas, they weren't happy. So Steve had to turn around and come back. And we were at that blockade for maybe 20, 30 minutes. And uh, there was a local on a small Honda uh, dual sport, and uh, he was an older gentleman. And he went back and forth to the front and tried to talk to the guys probably three times. And uh, eventually he came running back to our bikes and was like, let's go, let's go, vamos. So we ended up following him through the blockade and over top of the glass and around the barbed wire. And once we got into the middle of it, um, the, the locals, like the guys actually creating the blockade, didn't know that the guy at the front allowed us to go through safely. And uh, like everybody was just, they, they were upset because they wanted to block the road. They, they didn't want anybody through. Um, so we ended up getting on the throttle and, you know, just trying to race by. And uh, that was probably a kilometer, two kilometers up blockade and got to the other end and military was stopped on that side and they were asking us you know how did you get through what's happening because they didn't know what was happening they just knew that there was a blockade being created so yeah um that was that was fun maybe 20 kilometers down the road there was another blockade that we couldn't get through so we ended up having to take some big greasy mud track to detour around that took us a few hours which was an awesome ride <laughs> <laughs> so are the roadblocks a hazard a problem do they interrupt your trip or did you find they just added to it uh, they're just kind of part of it um you know on the motorcycle you got all your gear and the camping gear it's just kind of you you have a destination of a town that you always want to get to but you know i'm always self-prepared with water and food and the tent so if I have to pitch a tent in the ditch, then you have to. Um, but yeah, they just make they just make it. It's just kind of part of it. 
as long as it's safe, it's all good. But when you said you're riding through and you've got the, you're in the middle of it and, and everyone's upset with you, I mean, that's, um, that's a panic situation, isn't it? Well, it's not a good situation, especially when guys have machetes. Mm. Um, but it, we got through. Yeah. <laughs> what, what did they do and, as you're booting? You, you said you, you got on the throttle and go, I mean, are they pulling out their machetes at this point or, or throwing things at you or anything? No, nobody threw anything. They were just upset. They just, you know, they were just kind of like baffled as to why we were riding through when, um, you know, they just threw, you know, glass and barbed wire across the road. So it's more of like a respect thing in that culture. So um, we got to Cali, which was the next big city that evening and got on Google to try and figure out what was happening and didn't. And I think it was about a week later we found out that uh, uh, the government had promised those locals in that area uh, a lot of land, and it was quite a few years ago, and the locals still haven't gotten the land. So that was their way of uh, basically fighting that politically, saying, okay, we're going to close the highway, the main vein down, and uh, you got to give us our land. So. I think that section was closed for about a week or 10 days. People couldn't get through. So we were lucky. We got through right at the very beginning when they uh, they closed it. Now, what would you do if you couldn't go through? Would you sit there and camp and wait for it to open up? Um, probably turn around and find a different route down. But that particular road, um, I want to say that that was the Pan American. It was a pretty big detour to get off of that onto a secondary road to get around. So, um, yeah, we were pretty lucky to get through. What was your, your mode of operation as far as the way you were traveling? You did mention tents, so I'm, I'm assuming that you're doing some tenting, but um, what was your idea for it? Um, the tenting was, was definitely there. If I'm in a, a nice country setting that's safe, the weather's good, um, that's the ideal situation for camping. Uh, through Central America, I think I only camped maybe three or four times out of six weeks. It, uh, it was just so hot and humid that I wanted to either be in the hammock or be in a hostel where there was air conditioning. Mm. So, And how do you find your, your hostels or your destinations? Are you connecting on the internet with other travelers and, and sort of talking and doing that? Or are you just picking places you want to see? Um, it just kind of goes day by day. Some days um, you, you meet somebody and you're like, hey, I want to stay in a hostel so we can actually have a good conversation and some drinks at night. Um, sometimes there's a route in front of you that's just phenomenal and, you know, it might take two or three days to do the route. So then you may be camping. So it just depends on where you are. What about the trip so far? Did you, you imagine something, you know, did you imagine was going to be a certain way? and didn't turn out that way. Do you have anything like that? Like mental expectations? Yeah, anything. I mean, you know, something, you yeah. know, your idea, something you imagined in your head, this is how it's going to be, but you get on the trip, it's not like that at all. Oh, that's a good question. You know, I mean, that's, that's part of this is I've never, I've been to Mexico four times previous, so I had an idea of what Mexico was. I had no idea what Central America was, like besides just seeing it in pictures and reading about it. And then South America was just totally foreign to me. So Mexico, I can go through. It's fine. The food's awesome. It's cheap. The weather's perfect. Like, it's kind of one of those perfect countries. But I was scared to get into Guatemala. Like, that was actually a, a mental hurdle that I had to, to just cross that border to get into Guatemala. Because for whatever reason, I was like, okay, you know, this is starting now. Guatemala is potentially unsafe. And 
you know, three hours into that crossing and getting into Guatemala. It's like, this country is awesome. (laughs) (laughs) That's it. Three hours you were sold. (laughs) Yeah, I'm I'm in, you know, and then it's like, okay, I got to do El Salvador. Perfect. That's awesome, too. And then Honduras was a bit uh, mentally like, okay, I know that has the highest murder capital rate in the planet. Um, I don't know what's going to happen in Honduras and ended up spending a week in that country. And that was beautiful, too. Like the locals are just phenomenal so it's funny like my expectations shifted from day to day and it's like i i have this idea and then it's just like you get blindsided and it's like oh no this is this is actually a lot better than i was expecting or a lot worse you know <laughs> so your expectations change are you lowering them or, or are you changing the way you look at it or what maybe more of a realistic expectations um yeah, like when when you mentally think that a country could be unsafe and you're asking people or talking to people online or, you know, um, hey, is this good? And everybody's questioning you, like, why wouldn't it be good? You know, it's fine. People go through there every day and it's like, you know, why would it be anything that would be out of the ordinary? So you just maybe get to a point where it's just realistic. And if something happens, it happens. If it doesn't, then perfect. You just have more time to eat food. <laughs> How would you describe Central America? In, in particular, I'm asking these places because you, you said you already knew Mexico and, of course, the states and Canada. So yeah, how would yeah. you describe Central America and then South America? Um, Central America, you know, if you're riding south, that's when the, the adventure motorcycling kind of starts with the culture aspect. Because um, with Mexico, it's so big and it's such an easy country to get comfortable with because it's cheap. It's one currency. You get an idea as far as what's a good deal, what's not. You don't have to cross any borders inside of Mexico. You're just there. Like It's a huge country. But once you start going through Guatemala, El Salvador, Honduras, Nicaragua, Costa Rica, Panama, like you can do that really quickly. It's a pretty small piece of land there. So you just kind of have to be on it with paperwork. Um, and you know, that that sort of aspect of it. And then the humidity is another ball of wax because it's, it's just hot and sticky. So most of the time, you're just uncomfortable. Um, so that's definitely what I had to get used to of is just being sweaty all the time and, you know, wanting to have two or three showers a day just to feel like a, a normal human being. <laughs> mm, and you're still wearing all your gear at that point? You showed your gear. Oh, yeah. No, you, well, yeah, like, that's, I still have my boots on and I still have my jacket on and, you know, the, the helmet. So you still got to wear this stuff. But once you stop, you're peeling it off as quick as you can. And South America? Uh, South America is the real deal because then you have, you know, the 14,000 foot passes and the Andes. So that is, uh, that was definitely my care to get to Colombia is so I could get into cooler weather, the high peaks you know, the passes where you don't see people for a day or two days. So that's, uh, that's where the trip definitely started mentally for me. What'd you do for the Darien Gap? Uh, I took the stall rat. Um, yeah, from Carti, Panama over to Cartagena, Colombia. The stall rat being the, um, the boat that a lot of travelers take. Um, yeah. But talk about that. So originally I wanted to fly, um, from Panama to Colombia with air cargo pack um, just because you could rock up last minute and uh, just basically fly over and you're in Bogota and you're off running. 
the uh, the the price between flying and taking the stall rider the same. You know, they're about eleven hundred American, I think. Um, so give or take, they're really similar. Um, but with the flying, you can just do it last minute with the stall rat. You have to book six weeks, two months in advance. When you're moving day to day and you're not really 100% sure on what your schedule is going to be like, when you have a deadline, it's kind of like, oh, this is, I haven't had a deadline since I was working. So I, I had a hard time doing that. But I met so many people in Central America because it's kind of the bottleneck for all the riders that there was a date in June um, that everybody was just taking the boat. So it was kind of like, okay, I'll, I'll email Ludwig and get booked in because I'm riding with these guys anyway. So I was riding with a fellow named Alan from Florida and a, a fellow named Kyle from Australia um, down at the same time. So it was, just, it was just really convenient. And I'm glad I did because it's just, it's pretty special getting your motorcycle hoisted onto an old sailboat and sailing for four days across the Caribbean Sea. You know, that's pretty romantic idea. Sort of a party. E- yeah. But <laughs> well, I can just I imagine, but I'm <laughs> thinking like, the difference between a flight, you know, a flight seems so, I don't know, sterile. You know, you, you're rolling your bike in and you're, and you're flying it and you get off in, yeah. in an airport, whereas, as opposed to, like you said, getting on this this old boat. I think the boat, it's over 100 years old, isn't it? It is. It is. Yeah. Yeah. And so you've got a, a captain that's a character and you, you've got a bunch of other travelers. I mean, to me, yeah, it sounds like a great and you and you go through and you visit some islands, San Blas Islands. Oh, it's a, it's a beautiful trip. Um, like looking back now, I think anybody that is doing that stretch would be silly not to take the star rat. Mm. Um, it's just an awesome experience. And you get to get off your motorcycle at that point. Most people have been on the road for months, you know, five, six months. So just being forced to be off the road and suntan and eat some good food and just, you know, have conversations as your priority for four days is like, okay, this is good. This is really good. So yeah, everybody else had a great time on the boat. Once we started sailing and we were on open ocean, I was puking my guts out and that was for <laughs> a day and a half. Were you the only one that, that got seasick? I think I got the grunt of it. Um, <laughs> there was a, a German fellow that was super sick and there was a couple other people. Uh, yeah, it was just, I think it hit about four of us. So it was just, you get it sometimes. Everybody was laughing at me and taking pictures and video. And I'm like, come on, like, <laughs> I don't, this sucks. <laughs> Give a guy a break. What, what, did, you, did you figure out what the problem was? Would you think it was just gonna, one of those things or were you below deck or something at the start? No, it was just seasickness. So you get bunks below deck, you get your own bed and your own space to throw your gear. But because you're in Panama, it's just hot and humid. So one of the tricks that I learned um, in southern Mexico was to just sleep outside in the hammock to have some airflow around you. Like us staring at the stars is just beautiful, like no, no clouds in the sky. And then the next morning, I threw my feet in my flip-flops and walked on deck and it was probably 30 seconds and I was puking. So it may have been from swinging around in the hammock all night. Mm. It, uh, who knows? Who knows? But it definitely, <laughs> it definitely got me. <laughs> was that the whole trip? Uh, well, the first three days we were basically just in stagnant water in the San Blas Islands. So um, just like swimming and there's no, no waves. So it, it was all good. It was once we left the San Blas Islands heading for Cartagena and Colombia is when there was a little bit of waves, but like not enough that you would think you'd get seasick. But yeah, I guess I'm, 
my my head's more made for motorcycles than being on a sailboat, <laughs> I guess. <laughs> oh, I was pretty happy to get to land. That uh, that was a nice feeling. We talked earlier about um, your planning and how you like to plan things. You met somebody along the way that changed everything for you. One one woman in particular. Yeah, Claire Newbolt. Yeah, um, in some ways she's made my life a hundred times better, and you know, in other ways it's just definitely threw a wrench into things. Stay with us. The best laid plans stand to be changed or something like that. We're going to take a short break and be right back. Well, when it comes to standing up on your bike, you're standing on your pegs, which means your foot pegs are really important. And you know, the surprising thing is, is just how sort of, dare I say, wimpy those stock pegs are that you get on your bike. If you have a look at what IMS products is putting out, IMS has an incredible array of foot pegs there. You can basically choose from a smaller peg to a larger peg, but they're designed specifically for adventure motorcycling. Uh, They've got the ADV1s and the ADV2s that I I strongly recommend that you look at. These pegs are cast certified stainless steel, um, 17.4 stainless steel, heat treated, they're built in the USA, and they're warranted for life. They're designed to shed mud. So which means when you drop the bike into the mud, it doesn't ball up in a big ball of mud that sticks under your foot and makes your foot slide off. It's just one of the design aspects. The owner of IMS told me that when they were testing these foot pegs, one of the things they did was they put them in a press and they crushed them down until both sides touched. Let go of them, it sprung back, and there was nothing wrong with it other than the marks that the press had put on them. Incredible stuff. Drop by their website, www.imsproducts.com. And of course, anytime you're dealing with them, be sure... Please drop our name in there. Tell them you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. We talked earlier about um, your planning and how you like to plan things. You met somebody along the way that changed everything for you, one one woman in particular. Yeah, Claire Newbolt. Yeah, um, in some ways she's made my life a hundred times better and you know, in other ways, it's just definitely threw a wrench into things. It depends on how you look at it. <laughs> <laughs> but you're happy with the wrench. So happy. Yeah. Yeah. So, so talk fun. about that. How did you meet her? So the the first roadblock that I told you about was in Oxtruck. Um, the town that I was heading for was called Palenque. And it's in the jungle of southern Mexico. So it's like vines and huge leaves. And Palenque is uh, like an old ruin and that's why I was heading there and uh, so I did that blockade that afternoon and uh, hit a wall of rain like I didn't even have time to pull over to put my rain gear on and I was just soaked through in probably 40 seconds so finished riding into Palenque and uh, I was headed for a campground called Maya Bell that's right beside the ruins and rode up to the campground and you know I didn't see any other motorcycles and it was just pissing rain I was soaking wet. So got underneath the palapa and started talking to reception about a place to set up my tent or, you know, how much were the cabins? Like, I'm soaking wet. I got to uh, uh, dry my things out. And that was two months into the trip. So, again, my Spanish was like a two-year-old. So I'm talking to the lady at reception and Claire taps me on the shoulder. So I turned around and there's this little British gal um, with a little headband on and like super cute and speaking English to me. And uh, 
she starts speaking to this lady in reception in Spanish saying that, yeah, he can stay in my palapa. It's fine. And at that point, I could care less about being soaking wet or, you know, talking to reception. It's like, who is this girl? In two minutes, I find out that she's on her own motorcycle trip going in the opposite direction. So we sat there, you know, for a while, kind of being excited and sharing stories. And we're the only motorcyclists in this little campground. And uh, that's, that's how we met. But you're going in opposite directions. Yeah, that was the problem. <laughs> so you guys spent some time together and then head off. And, and what happens from there? You know, do you guys go off in your different directions? So we met back up in San Cristobal and it just kept getting better. Like it just, things clicked. It just, I don't know. Um, so we ended up spending two weeks together and, uh, you know, at the end of that two weeks, it was like, this is awesome. Like, what do we do? Claire was headed for Alaska on her 250. And for me, I didn't really have a schedule, but Claire was more of on like a, a weather schedule to hit Alaska before the snow flew in the end of August, beginning of September. So this was, uh, the middle of May, I think. So she was, she travels really slow. So, um, you know, we were either just going to spend a lot more time in Mexico, just traveling together, or we just kind of had to split up. So we decided to split and I bumped into Guatemala and she continued north through Mexico. And, uh, about a week after, you know, talking every day on WhatsApp is like, okay, how are, what are we going to do? Like, we're looking at the world maps, you know, we're both travelers, like we both have the freedom to kind of do whatever we want, but we're just going in different directions. So that's where we ended up cooking up the plan to get me to Columbia. And then I stored my motorcycle actually at Ludwig's house um, for three months. That's from the stall route. Yeah, 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 yeah. So he was nice enough to, to store my bike for me in his house, in his garage. And then I flew back and bought a Honda CRF 250 Rally and then uh, bombed down to Vegas to meet back up with Claire. And that's where we ended up doing the Continental Divide up through the States. So it was another three months. So that was kind of like the test if this was actually a relationship or if it was just some fun Mexican thing, you know. <laughs> you had to be pretty confident to go back and spend your money buying another motorcycle. Yeah, yeah, and the flights and everything. It yeah, uh, it definitely was a costly venture because I had to pay to storm a motorcycle. I had to fly back. I had bought another bike. Mm. Well, you, you bought a CRF 250L. Right. Oh, no, at the rally, sorry, the rally. The rally, yeah, yeah. So, so you, you've switched like 1200 to the rally. That's a huge change in your, your travel mode. You must have had to get yeah. bags and things for it. Yeah. I, uh, basically, I sourced out all the parts when I was in Central America and got them sent to my friend's house. And uh, um, basically, I flew in. The next day, I had the, the rally. I had all the parts already set up at Luke's house because you know I had a month to kind of prepare that. So me and Luke spent an afternoon just bolting parts onto the bike, bark busters, you know, risers, luggage rack, all that stuff. And then two days later, I was on my way down to Vegas. So I was like, I think I was in Vancouver for three days, <laughs> setting up a bike. <laughs> <laughs> wow, this is a life that I'm sure a lot of people would love to be to be experiencing. So th that's a great change there, 1200 to the 250. What do you think? Uh, it was the best change I could have made. Um, like I've always flip flapped back and forth between big bikes and little bikes, but we planned on doing really technical riding through 
you know, Moab and Colorado and, you know, the northern side of the divide's not technical. It's just kind of open dirt pasture. But, you know, like I wanted to get back to a light bike where I wasn't worried about the weight. And uh, that was kind of the test on that 250 was like, okay, I obviously I'm going to finish South America on the 1200 because it's on the continent. Um, but for the rest of the trip, I might actually do a 250. So that was kind of a test mentally for me as well. And yeah, it was just a total blast. I loved it. What kind of things do you find you're doing with a 250 that you couldn't do or you, you found uncomfortable with a 1200? You're, it's definitely, uh, I, I actually tore my tendon in my left elbow in Colorado because it doesn't have enough power to like really loft over like obstacles when you're on a trail. So you're more compressing the suspension and lifting up. So I ended up tearing a, a tendon. And that was the only thing that was kind of wrong with the bike is they could have just used more oomph. Yeah. Um, but the good thing being smaller and lighter is you're just forced to ride slower. You're forced to take more in. So as far as like, you know, absorbing the atmosphere around you, the little bike's better, you know, for me at least. Not to mention picking it up. Yeah, yeah, that as well. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's a different world to pick up the 250. Even with your bags on it, it's a different world from the 1200. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So I tested that out, put 15,000 kilometers on the, the 250 rally and had a total blast on that bike. I loved it. It was good. It's an awesome platform. And what did you do with it? Um, in September, the end of September, we were done like our three months together. So Claire stored her XR250, her Latino XR250 in Vancouver. And then I stored my 250 rally at my parents' house up in Quesnel. And I didn't want to sell it at that point. I was thinking, okay, I'm going to use this bike for, you know, another leg at some point on this big trip. So I just want to hang on to it. So then I flew back to Columbia and then got back on the, the 1200GS and continued south. And then uh, uh, Claire flew back to Australia to get back to work, back to Brisbane. So then I was back on my own when I got back to South America. And now you're in Australia. What are you doing there? Um, I'm back into the marketing world. So I got uh, a marketing coordinator position with an auto group here. So you're going to work for a while and then you're, you're back on the road. I mean, you, you really, yeah. I think you're, you're sort of considering you're still on the road right now. I mean, this, this is just a stop to grab some cash. Um, yes and no. I think it's, uh, mentally it's a stop to get cash. Um, it's to continue the marketing career because, you know, I've been out of the, the work force for over a year and a half now. So, you know, to kind of keep up to speed with, with marketing, you need to be in it. Mm. Um, so I didn't want to unplug from work for four years. Now it's kind of looking that way and then try and get back into it. It would just be too difficult. So, um, yeah, it's kind of to, to get back, um, to get money in the bank account, to kind of feel like a normal person and to make the traveling special again. One thing that I wasn't expecting is being on the road every day. It, it kind of, it turns into your normal life. Um, and because of that, that, the, that little buzz that you have, that's like, yeah, I'm living off the motorcycle. I'm, I'm doing it, you know, six months in, eight months in, it's kind of like, oh yeah, this is normal. This is a normal life. And once I started feeling that way, I had to kind of like, okay, what am I going to do? I might have to switch gears for a bit just so this is special. Cause you spend a lot of money being on the road and, you know, it's just, 
I, I need to get that buzz. So, you know, I might be in Brisbane for five years, who knows? Um, and then obviously exploring Australia slowly on a bike, um, but working at the same time. And then we will pick up and continue at some point, both of us. You're going to travel together. Oh yeah. 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 That's the plan. So smart with the, with working somewhere else too, because it, it certainly helps your resume, doesn't it? When you come back rather than having this, like you said, five year gap where they're thinking, okay, this guy's lost touch. Um, whereas yeah. actually what you're going to have is international experience. So you'd be bringing yeah. a lot more to the table. Yeah. And that's, uh, maybe something that shifted for me, um, on this trip is like, I was kind of like in race mode thinking, okay, I'm going to do the whole planet in a year and a half, two years get back to work with Barnes Harley and Langley and, you know, have at her again. And it's like, well, why am I in a rush? You know, I'm only going to do this once. So if it takes a long time, then it takes a long time. It's fine. So I've just, I've definitely shifted my attitude towards that. Well, you've been traveling along and you mentioned that you're staying at hostels and meeting other riders on the road. What nationalities are you meeting? Are you meeting a lot of people from certain countries or does it seem to be all over the place? It's all over the place. Mm. Yeah. Because, you know, being in campgrounds, you can meet overlanders on motorcycles and overlanders in the big trucks. So they can be from anywhere. Um, once you get to hostels, you're meeting more the backpacker types where they're flying in and doing their trip for a month or two months and then flying out. So you kind of get a different um, vibe from those people. Um, if you're staying in hotels, a lot of times that's locals or people that are working. Um, so it just really depends on where you're at is depending on who you meet. But yeah, everybody's from all over the world. Like I think now that I've been gone Canada for a year and a half, most of my best friends are not from Canada. They're just from other places on the planet. There's a difference there. You said between the hostels and the campgrounds, the hostels clearly have a, a sort of a different style traveler, the campgrounds being more overlanders, the sort of thing that yeah. that people who listen to this show would be interested in. So, yeah. so I guess a piece of advice would be look for the campgrounds. Yeah. And uh, a, a lot of times I would be looking for a campground because they're less expensive. And I actually have a better sleep in my tent because I'm not listening to other people snore, <laughs> which is, you know, something if you're sleeping in a hostel, you're definitely listening to people snoring or coming in from partying and at 3 a.m. or whatever into the dorm room. So normally I'd be looking for a, a campground or a hotel just so I could have a good sleep. But if you're in the campground, you're going to meet more like minded people as well. What tips do you have for anyone else as far as bike gear, um, travel method, or even planning for doing any sort of trip? Um, planning, I would say have the money in the bank account. Have, have some sort of system financially where you can you know, not be stressed about money. That's a, a key for me is like I want to be stressing about the routes. I want to be stressing about the weather. I want to be stressing about where I'm going to eat or sleep don't want to be stressing about the money as well. That's just too much. Um, so figuring that out first is definitely the finances and then get good gear. Like I know that there's so many articles on the internet as far as just the right gear. Um, but getting the stuff that's light that can last if something happens with it, you know, the company that you bought it from will help you out internationally. Like I got, um, I blew some baffles in an Xped mattress in, uh, Guatemala and Exped actually sent me a new mattress from Sweden, Switzerland, Sweden, from Europe over to Guatemala to, to replace it. Nice. And I didn't even have to send the, the old mattress back. I just had to send them a picture that I, you know, it was broken. So the, those little things definitely help out once you're on the road, because if you're stationed in one country, 
you don't even think about it. You just go into a store to warranty something and it's easy. But once you're international, it's like, okay, this cheap thing that I bought, you know, at home, I can't get warrantied. So that means I have to try and source out something locally, which you may or may not be able to, depending on where you're at. Right. So the, the gear is its own angle. And then as far as planning, I would definitely give the advice is to plan to be flexible. Like I left thinking that I was going to be gone for two years and I, I met a girl and I just kind of threw everything for a loop. But because of that, I'm now living in Australia and working in Australia, like it just gets better. So, you know, just be open to those opportunities as they arise because it's going to happen. It's depending on who you meet, those opportunities are going to be there. What about bike choice? Um, that's probably going to change as you ride. Like um, through Alaska, the 1200 was perfect because it's just wide open roads and not really technical roads. But once you get into Mexico and Central America, you can be on very technical roads. South America, the north part, so Colombia, uh, Ecuador, Peru, you're on technical roads. Um, so that's where a 250 or a 400, even a 650 is just ideal. A 1200 is not. It's just it's just a big bike. But once you get to Chile and Argentina and you're on like the fl- wide open Patagonia roads, then the 1200 is perfect. So there's not really a perfect bike. Um, I actually just bought a WR250R last night to set up for Australia. Um, so I'm flopped back to the tiny bike again. So I don't know. <laughs> we could talk about that for hours. Yes, most definitely. Well, it sounds like you're living the life. Kevin, thank you very much. Thanks, Jim. I appreciate it. I've been speaking with Kevin Chow, originally from Quesnel, British Columbia, and now living in Australia in a new life. And time will tell what Kevin will get up to, but I'm sure it'll be an adventure. You can find out more about Kevin at his website, www.worldoverland.com. And that link, as well as a bunch of photos we have of Kevin's adventures, are in our show notes. I just want to remind you this episode was made possible for you today in part by Max BMW Motorcycles at www.maxbmw.com, Best Rest Products at www.cyclepump.com, Green Chili Adventure Gear at www.greenchiliadv.com, and MotoBreeze Chain Oilers, www.motobreeze.com. up another episode of adventure rider radio we sure hope you enjoyed listening to it as much as we did making it hey if you like what we're doing here and you want to help things out we've built this show on a model of some advertising and listener support and to be honest we need that listener support to make the whole model work so if you're not doing it already consider dropping by our website uh, there's a bunch of different ways you can support if you send ten dollars you get a sticker sent back at you if you send fifty dollars you get a mention on our raw show and uh, you can also sign up for our monthly patreon uh, account and that's just so you you just leave it you know you sign up and you're done it just does it automatically for you every month we'd love it if you consider that if you like what we're doing you want to help us do more and make the show even better than what it is we'd certainly appreciate it 
Now it's time to get out there and ride your bike. My name is Jim Martin. Thanks for listening. See you next week. Hi, this is Mary McGee, and you are listening to Adventure Rider Radio. (laughs) 